if anyone does listen to this, and if you're listening to this and you're working in an innovation zone, you've probably heard, well, how's that going to scale for the greater company? And there's no fun way, more fun way to prove people wrong than just take over the biggest thing they have that they're worried about. What is up, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. In today's episode of the Big Ideas in App Architecture podcast, we speak to Jason Valentino, who is currently the head of engineering enablement at BNY Mellon. Jason and I talk about his experience building innovation pilots at Cockroach One Labs to how the ideas were incubated and led to amazing products that got shipped into production. We also talk about his experience building developer experience teams and an amazing platform engineering practice at Peloton. So pump up that volume and get ready for an insightful conversation with Jason Valentino. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. How are you doing? David, doing well. How are you, my friend? I'm good. I'm good. Here's one of the first things I wanted to say. Jason Valentino is a really, really cool name. I don't know if anybody has complimented you before on that. Thanks. No, yeah, yeah. Um, I... I I am I, blessed with a, okay. with a great last name and can't speak Italian at all, which is quite upsetting to, to go <laughs> along with it. I'm actually Jason Dante Albert Valentino. Oh, wow. And, okay. uh, yeah, I, I'm as Americanized as you possibly could get with a name but like that. You know what the name kind of reminds me of? If you have like a band, like a 90s or well, I would say 70s, 80s band. And then if you say uh, you are a main vocalist for that band, that's a fitting name, actually. Jason Valentino opening for this band or something like that. I'll take a note of that. That's, that's a good. Uh, I've been thinking about what to do next in my career. So maybe maybe that's, that's where we go with it. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I would say, first of all, you know, it's it's so great to have you on the podcast. I mean, I've heard so many great things about you and I've been following some of the things that you've been doing on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, it's an absolute pleasure uh, to have you. And right now, I think what your current role is, you're the head of engineering enablement at BNY Mellon, which is like a new gig that you just started. Tell us a little bit more about uh, where you are right now and what led you to that opportunity. Um, well, I just started. I actually just completed my first month at BNY. It's a it's a slightly new role for the organization where, uh, like most companies, there's a team that is managing dev tooling. There's teams that are doing automation, the cloud and whatnot. Uh, and, and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot, huge desire for reuse throughout the company. Um, and they've really been debating how do you actually measure developer effectiveness and, uh, and happiness? And it's just one of those things where I think the internal debates turned on to a point where they're like, we should probably find someone that's done this before. And, uh, and then my, my manager, Mike Kessler, um, somehow found me through the DevX network. And so uh, it's just one of those unique situations where I'm talking to the highest levels of leadership in the company, and they absolutely have a passion for this. Whereas normal companies, when you are the DevX person, you're always having to sell up. Always, you're like, hey, here's the value we can get. Just do this at X, Y, and Z. And so, just the idea of having a company where you know I'm starting with tailwinds behind me is absolutely, absolutely exciting. Now, I did promise myself I'd never go back into banking after working, you know, in banking for a dozen years. Uh, and we all lie to ourselves, so it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. I, uh, I I didn't break any core tenants here. Yeah, that and as long as the paycheck is good, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah there you go. Yeah. So you've had a really amazing, fascinating career, like almost 20 plus years of career. But the last 10 years of your career has been really fascinating, right? Working, uh, you were one, the number third employee at uh, Capital Labs uh, that produced some amazing, you know, results. Yeah, uh, for yeah, Capital was, uh, One. 
on the tech side, the product grew quicker than tech did. But uh, yeah, it was like <laughs> probably number three in, in Capone's original, like now what they consider their Capone Labs or the Innovation Lab back in the day, ran their um, most of their infrastructure functions. And so it was kind of like, this is so long ago, but you know, over a decade ago, the bank's policy on things like cloud or big data was no. Like, don't right. touch it. Don't talk to vendors who touch it. Uh, and, you know, I, we ran the first like set of exceptions around those, experimented with the cloud, inevitably, you know, sat there in front of uh, Kaplan CEO and showed off the technology that, you know, years later is now the only way to get anything done in the company. I think they shut down their last data center maybe four or five years back. Right. Right. So yeah, we'll we'll dive into that bit a little bit more. But in your um, you know career, the next step was like a really good stint at uh, you know um, Peloton as well, uh, the company that we all have known about since COVID. And you were there right at the uh, you know when everything was going wild at Peloton with all the subscribers and people buying Peloton during COVID. Uh, but you've had a fascinating career. When I was going back and looking at what you've done, you've been especially part of enterprises like Capital One, Peloton, and now at BNY, talking about cloud enablement, developer experience, and uh, just helping the companies build these early prototypes that have turned into amazing products for them. So that's what I was like really curious to kind of talk to you about, you know. So before we get to BNY and what you do, I mean, I wanted to start with, uh, you know, uh, just talk about the, uh, the piece that you were talking about. Like, how did that Capital One gig kind of come through and what made you excited to get into that? It was, it, it kind of chose me. So before that, I was an, I was an IBM consultant at Capital One, working in the data center, like trying to coordinate all the hundreds of things that need to go into building infrastructure at a company that loves its requirements and at the right. time was still really waterfall. And I guess I was the one who cheated the most at that job. And so like I had the, my, my team had the fastest numbers, right? I, I, I became a full-timer at Cap One and uh, it, it was because we cheated. Like we, <laughs> you know, we, we pre we pre-baked designs. We knew the things the architects were going to ask. We just kind of tried to like, you know, we escalated our stuff through. Gotcha. Um, but in the old days, like getting stuff done was hard. And so you kind of had to cheat. And when um, the gentleman, Skip Potter, who now is uh, the, the CDO, CTO at uh, Columbia, like came in to start the lab, um, he was like, well, you seem like the only person that's getting stuff done here. Why don't you come work for me? And so it went from me just being an average, like, you know, engineering manager in the company to something that really springboarded my career. It was uh, exposure in the lab. You know, this is again, a while ago to like concepts that you never really under get in tech, like design thinking and really having some empathy to your customers. And for someone who was in infrastructure at the time, my customers are the devs trying to get work done, right? And so, you know, we ended up rolling the, you know, a whole CI/CD suite out for the lab and building tools specifically for the lab so the lab could move quickly. And then as Cap1 matured, similar practices or exact same practices were adopted by the greater company. And so Cap1 actually became an easy place for all devs to work right. um, to a certain extent. And, you know, once I had my first couple projects that work out in the lab, I... I kind of rode one out and ended up getting into just, you know, like I went from having like the smallest thing in the company, which is like all these lab pilots to got to own most of the orchestrator and SRE operations behind everything that was customer facing at the company, which was super nice. cool. Um, that was kind of like the, you always hear when you're allowed, if anyone, um, if anyone does listen to this and if you're listening to this and you're working in an innovation zone, you've probably heard, well, how's that going to scale for the greater company? And there's, 
no fun way, more fun way to prove people wrong than just take over the biggest thing they have that they're worried about and start and applying just shape it. practices to it. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. That's awesome. So last time when I was talking to you, you told me like you were one of the biggest troublemakers at Capital One because you were one of the first people to kind of test out, uh, you know, the, the cloud and kind of bring that in. And now in hindsight, and, and you can attest to this, Capital One is big, one of the biggest users of AWS. So tell me a little bit about that part uh, as to what what led you to kind of believe that, OK, this is the direction the company needs to go. Like cloud is important. It was you know, it wasn't that I was a good strategist, especially especially back then. It wasn't that I was a good futurist. It was just like, where is the te- where's the resistance and where's the tension? And in you know, when you're trying to manage your data center as a company, that that's probably not your specialty, right? Nothing feels fluid. Everything feels slow. Everything is baked in process, you know. And and also, these are like a lot of data center management is there's a lot of just Here's the overhead behind us. Here's the project management behind this. This is the capacity planning behind us. It's hard to do. So it's a lot easier just to open a little Terraform, you know, file and push go and have your infrastructure done for you, right? So from my perspective, we just started looking at things that were easier and faster. And as time went by, you know, the rest of Cap One saw the same. There, there was, you know, I was all pilots, little stuff, labby versus yeah. that, you know, once the value of the cloud was seen, like some of the like top execs in the company and some of these really high performing teams started rallying around the cloud. Next thing you know, like they're encouraging every new project to go there instead of sitting in the data center. And I, I was fortunate enough because it's one thing to have cloud capabilities. It's another thing to have a team that knows how to, what to do with them. Right. I was fortunate enough at the time that I had a pretty software-shaped team that was ready, willing, and excited about it and able to start getting stuff there. And so, you know, um, it was a, one of the other execs in the company, um, you know, and I had a joke, like, which one of us can get our biggest platform to the cloud first, right? Like, and it was <laughs> like, just a gentleman's bet over, uh, over you yeah. know, who probably more recklessly, like, throw something into the cloud. But, you know, we got the mobile app in there quick. And, next thing, and all the other, you know, customer-facing apps really quickly followed. Right. So I wanted to ask, like, what was the culture before you started exploring that? Like, what was Capital One mostly? I know Capital One went through like a really big, uh, you know, moment where they were like, we need to be the leading innovator in the banking space. And they were not really a bank bank, but like more of a credit card kind of approach. And yeah. then it suddenly grew up. So when you joined the company, what was their perspective? And what did you feel they needed to kind of uh, do in terms to in terms to like you know, move into that innovation space? Oh, now looking back what I thought they should do, because uh, yeah. I didn't at the time, right? Like I joined in 2009, I think. Nice. And um, right before, right around that same time period, maybe a little bit before, I think their current CIO like took the helm. I think Rob should probably get all the credit for what, like, like A, you were asked about the culture. The culture was already strong. It was a young right. company. It's founder-led. If you've ever worked, if anyone's ever worked there, it's fun to work there, even if you're mm. you're staring down obstacles and change controls and weird stuff. Um, it had all the bones of greatness. Rob walked in and and kind of you know honestly kind of he 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 saw outsourced development and did that you know he saw a lack of bringing in our own talent. He started a college hire program. He started a lab. He did this. He did that. And so like the building blocks were all going into place right around the time I was joining. 
Right. And then, uh, and what followed, right, once you start really intersourcing and right, actually having an innovation agenda, moving away from contract development, moving away from other organizations, managing your data centers and other important aspects of your company, good things tend to follow. Right. And, you know, that combined with that founder led nature that Cap One had, it, it just the next 10 years, I, I think anyone who was there during that journey, it was, it was history. Like, it, this yeah. thing went from like old fashioned bank to like cloud first business like, as quickly as I think anyone could go. Right. Oh, that's awesome. So tell us a little bit more about one of the incubation projects that you started off in the lab and that turned into like a big, important, significant product for, you know, Capital One. And then how did that take one example and kind of talk us through the journey of looking at the product, thinking about design, architecture, scale, all those things, the uh, how you consider all of that? Right. Put the infrastructure guy on the spot for uh, uh, speaking. <laughs> no, we'll to not go into details, but you can tell us the high level. <laughs> I did. Um, one of the fun ones we were doing way back in the day, if you remember, and this is a long time ago, remember when the iPhone 6 came out? Yep. Um, when iPhone iPhone six was a really big milestone for for the Apple products, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you how this ties into the, the bank at all. Um, but it also was the iPhone that had Apple Pay, mm. and so most of the big banks got invited secretly into the conversation with Apple around how can we be a launch partner with Apple Pay, um, and the lab along with uh, partners in digital all had to figure out exactly how we were going to get a companion app up running in a really short period of time for this launch so that our customers have it, you know, like can easily just pull up one of their cap one cards, take a picture of it and have it auto enroll into Apple Pay. And so that was, that was a big partnership between the lab, greater architecture, greater digital engineering organizations. And that was kind of the, the ride out for me. Um, once we got that, you know, I, I ended up being the infrastructure head on that project and, once it was up and rolling, you know, it was time for that to graduate out of the lab and be run by a bigger organization. And gotcha. you know, the healthy move to make was to go with the product. Got it. Oh, I mean, that's amazing. So was that also like when you were creating the product, when you were designing the whole idea of how it all comes together, you have to definitely consider transactions and the scale at which these transactions happen. You have to consider compute. Uh, how did you go about recommending that? Like at that point, did you have like a set of architects who were educated enough because you also had the function of developer experience that you were slowly honing uh, and bringing the, into the overall culture at Capital One. How, how did not, you do I that? I mean, goal? I wasn't doing any DevX work at Capital One. Especially okay. I was just managing a couple tools. Uh, okay. uh, but, uh, you know, at the time, like, yeah, there's a lot of that. Most of the, the difficult part of the flow when Apple Pay first came out was more enrollment gotcha. and actual transaction loads. Capital One knows how to manage transactions. Right. Okay. They, they, they're, <laughs> there are plenty of credit card swipes having over the course of a general day for that. I think right. they see like something like eight, nine percent of like all credit card transactions in the world. Right. So they, 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 they not saying scale is not and that you plan out in a project like that. But uh, for us and the infrastructure that I was working on specifically was enrollment. Now, let's take a little bit of a pivot back and maybe uh, go back in time a little bit to a young Jason Valentino and uh, and kind of understand a little bit about where were you in terms of, uh, you know, when you were finishing college uh, and thinking about, hey, I need to get into tech and what motivated you to get into this field of tech, uh, you know, 20 years ago? Like, was there a trigger point, something that you saw that really excited you about the field? No, it, it was just the the ability to create 
And so I, uh, I had like my own little mini business, like towards the end of high school and into college, uh, making websites for local businesses. Now, okay. uh, tell everybody what, how my age is, right? Like <laughs> this is the late nineties. And if you could figure out that marquee tab, you know, you are basically the greatest HTML programmer in the world at that period of time. So let's, let's not get too impressed, but yeah, did, did a little web dev that was all self-taught way back in the day, um, which was super fun. And then as I was in school, you know, having that, um, uh, you know, actually like just randomly met someone, I, I taught karate. Like I, I, yeah. I, I thought I'd be a professional kickboxer when I was a kid and, uh, <laughs> here we are not doing that, but, um, you know, like someone at the school was like, I managed a tech team. Do you want to be my intern? And so it went from like, I went like my last dev gig was before I ever even got through college. <laughs> right. And then next thing I know, it's uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm working back office at some weird pharmaceutical company, uh, right. imaging computers and keeping servers running. And that just like that, within six months, I was a full time engineer on the staff and kept rolling from there. Nice. That's awesome. And uh, while, while you were doing that, you, did you ever anticipate that you're going to be like a head of engineering enablement somewhere down the line? Like, wh- what were you thinking at that point of time? You know, like a dev career. Is that where you were lined? I, you know, I, I honestly, and, and this is bad advice, like this is so counterintuitive to people that actually are really goal motivated or have really great growth mindsets. I've I've never really considered like, my end game ever being further along than what I've done every four years of my career. <laughs> it's just kind of like, like I accidentally keep leapfrogging where I think the, like the, the ceiling is. Right. Um, and I have no clue why or how. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's funny. Well, it, but it, it's interesting when you say that, because I've seen a lot of people I've spoken to in my life who always feel like having a, a time period set for what they want to work on and accomplish is just way more simpler. And, much more, I would say, objective than saying, oh, in 20 years, I want to be a CEO. When maybe you can become a CEO after four iterations of objective completions, you know, you, you feel like you want to start a company and you've acquired enough knowledge. So uh, I feel like that's a great advice also, like generally for people to be aware of like, hey, think think short, be clear about what you want to accomplish in that time time period. Uh, what do you think? I don't know if it's advice, it just worked for me. Like for me, it's okay. just kind of like, Hey, if I do this for three years, what, what do I want to work on next? You know, yeah. it's kind of like, the, I've always, if you ever had to read the, the, the terrible, uh, word vomit, that is my resume, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I like, I bounce between, you know, kind of EM and SRE and EM and SRE or whatever the, the at time period equivalent are over and over and over again to the point right. where it's like, they're both fun. They both like you can be really good at one and the other, and like have a great understanding of each other, like of, of what needs to be done to keep software running. Um, but it only happens if you keep volunteering to bounce back and forth, right? Like, right. I went, like before Peloton, I was you know the, the de facto CTO of Cap One Shopping, running the full stack, learning way more about front end than I ever thought I would, you know. Um, yeah. So when you were saying like you're talking about EM and SRE, that's interesting because when I was talking to you, uh, th- th- I've when you were saying that, I kind of realized that SREs have had a moment in the last decade, especially, you know, with infrastructure and Kubernetes projects and container orchestration being so central to company scale and growth, right? Um, and and you've been part of that growth, at least at Capital One Shopping, you were talking about how, when we spoke last time, how containers became really quick 
critically important for you uh you know so tell us a little bit more about uh thinking like an sre uh, while also thinking about building a scalable product yeah and it was pre- is previous to shopping the gig right before that was was when i ran digital reliability and yeah. um the problem statement there which you know most folks would listen to now and it's pretty obvious and easy but this is you know six seven years maybe eight years back uh you're in the cl- you get to the cloud you have a well-designed app to run you know on you know smaller increments so you have microservices micro experience experiences but you have 150 to 200 of them and <laughs> you're just one app right you're not like the whole company's ecosystem and this is pre-containers, so yeah, and you're at a company that really insists you need this many availability zones and this many live regions. Next thing you know, your AWS bill is uh, it's uh, more than you're ever you're ever going to make an income in your life, right? Yeah. So you got to do something about that. And for us, like that was an, that necessitated, you know, moving to container-based delivery, which we did. We um, you know, we, we we built a, a, a custom. Um, hosting app using uh, um, Hashi's Nomad at the time. Kubernetes wasn't right for us just yet. And the company's really made strides from what I can tell uh, since I've left there. Uh, but then also you also just consider like in your architecture, you know, for, for us in digital reliability, uh, those services, most of those called back to something else deeper down in the depths of the bank. Right. And so you, you never really think about it, but if whoever your retail bank is, if you look at that mobile app, you know, there's your profile picture, there's your bank balance, there's your credit card balance, there's something else there, there's a bunch of other services, and those aren't coming from the team that manages that mobile app, right? They're coming right. from somewhere deep down in the company. And I think we just as many, you know, services as we had, we had that many or more dependencies on other folks. And so right. when you get to a point where you're delivering content, you know, on behalf of the rest of the organization, um, you kind of got to like play it like Netflix, right? Like you, like easy thing to do is just steal their stack, borrow open source. <laughs> cool. Um, but you know, get to a point where you're using defensive programming. You know, you, you have circuit breaker set up for everything behind you. You have quick ways of filtering and, and like having request filtering. If something, you know, evil gets out into that mobile app, but you have to get to the point where if someone else in your company is having a bad day, the customer doesn't know about it. Your, right. your portion of the application can absorb it. Um, yeah. you know, like that being the case, like it, it was really, really easy to, to have, like, to, to say, Hey, look at my uptime. My uptime is great. Don't ask me about every component, like in every backend dependency I've ever had. If you have just a hundred dependencies, like in your uptime metric is like, you know, nine, nine point nine, nine, like someone's going to break every couple of days. And that's, yeah. that's to be expected design around it. Right. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, and I wanted to get your thoughts too, because I've thought about this often and off late I've had a few conversations with really good, you know, SRE folks and kind of, uh, it also feels like you have some amazing experience there, right? 15 years ago, I would go to a website and the website wasn't hitting. I was like, okay, I'll just go back and tell, you know, somebody <laughs> from my, my crew, Hey, this is not working. Okay. We'll wait for the, to book the ticket for the next concert when the mm-hmm. website comes back up. But today you cannot do that. Uh, today something goes down immediately. You have people throwing a tantrum on Twitter or now, you know, call it Instagram threads or wherever it is. And everybody knows immediately and kind of hits the reputation of the company, hits the customer experience. So uh, tell me about 
how much when you're designing systems you have to consider these kind of uh, situations i you know when it comes to looking at stuff like customer impacts error budgets whatnot like for me it's more i just i just relive every incident retro i've ever had in my head and i try to think through like because how many like in the old days used to sit at them and like someone would be like, how do we not catch this in testing? Or like, ah, like, well, how could you put this problem in there? And like, you blame the people. Right. Instead of just recognizing uh, humans are flawed. I'm a super flawed human. Uh, and so I, I, I commiserate with this. <laughs> uh, how do we make the software a little bit more elastic, you know, to, right. to actually allow for a couple human errors here and there? Um, you know, we, uh, at Peloton, we had like a, a pretty significant outage. And I, the one thing I really respected about Peloton is they were really good. Um, the, the IM practices they put together were quite good and quite blameless. And so it was very easy to, to step out of, a, a, you know, a public outage and go, well, okay, I do want a paper on how that happened, why that happened. Mm-hmm. I also want recommendations from the engineering community on if something similar were to happen how could we survive it without like this being any, a problem that exacerbates some other th- underlying thing that's designed poorly that, you know, fails the company at the end of the day. Yeah. So yeah, long I story mean, short, assume we're all going to assume we all are going to mess up and yeah. try to try to design your software as such. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, so I, you know, it kind of reminded me uh, what you said was the first job I got uh, ever tech job uh, was uh, in a team uh, where I had to do development testing and support. But within that team, I had to do support uh, first. So I was the youngest guy. And this is my first day. And uh, I was working for uh, you know a consulting company at the time, which was working for British Telecom. And uh, British Telecom had a solution uh, called um, you know ADSL. Basically, what you could do is you could go and put in your postcode or your zip code, and it would tell you, hey, uh, you know, what bandwidth is available. And other company, retail companies would buy that to sell different you know, broadband solutions back in the UK. So this is the first day of job. I'm doing the evening shift, which is like seven o'clock in the evening. And I have one guy with me. I they say it's a P1 because apparently the entire website went down. So and so when, I, when you say SREs, uh, you know, I was like, th- that moment, I was like, dude, I don't know what to do over here, you know. Uh, but then we went through the process, look at different tickets. And at, back in the day, what people would do is, well, it seems like it's upstream team's issue. So we would send tickets to each other, play table tennis uh, over there. But we eventually found the issue was uh, that somebody, when they checked in the code in the last release, forgot to add a function. And, and that was really important. That would check a certain variable. And then that that was the reason why it was erroring out. And then the whole website would go down because of that. So we have gone way past that in today's uh, you know system because we are building uh, not monolithic application, but microservices. And we release of microservices API or uh, you know different functions. Then they run now, run in containers, maybe on an NEKS system or a GKE. Uh, and then th- the maturity has been fantastic. So... How do you feel about where we have come in the last fifteen years? It's it's been fantastic, and especially for where you are, it's it it would be a very good perspective to kind of see all of this. It is and just the best part about it, it's um, you know, if, uh, when Gene Kim first wrote the Phoenix Project, like you could read it and commiserate with it, um, and it told you what was wrong, but like 
you looked at your own team and you're like, it's going to take a while before this is right. And then like, you know, you speed up to God knows how many books later, right. To the modern day, the average engineering manager cares about their uptime, cares about the stability of their system. Right. And just getting to a point where we've moved away from a world where there's ops and there's development and we're all incentivized differently. And we all have like different opinions on what we need to do next. Right. It's just kind of like getting to a point where the teams now have autonomy that like actually like, yeah, I, I care about the stability of my application. Yeah, like th- this is like not only is, you know, stability a first class citizen, but so is design. So is just the overall architecture of mine. I, I think just getting to a point where we all have more ownership over everything was probably the biggest win I've seen in the last like decade. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Uh, I was going to ask you, I mean, you went from like, of course, you're an engineering manager, uh, you know, so looking at engineering enablement, you've had great SRE experience, but you've also been a great leader, right? You've built lots of different teams and you've, you've uh, what's your leadership style? Like, how do you inculcate different ideas on how teams need to kind of build uh, or follow actively on what the objectives are and things associated with the goals? <laughs> okay, uh, I don't know where you heard that I was a good leader, but okay, we'll, we'll, we'll work with it. We'll, we'll go well, on I the operating. Say, I generally give everyone the benefit of the doubt and say they were Love good it. at everything. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, so for me, it's a highly effective team is one that can move quickly without my input or without my leader's inputs. Right. Uh, and so um, I tend to be pretty, my goal is to be hands off. Uh, my goal is to let the team's charter, the team's operating principles work for themselves. My job is more help folks um, help folks get what they know they need from the greater organization in order to get their jobs done. Like uh, run people through exercises they haven't. So an example of that is I have a team that feels like it's understaffed right now. Uh, objectively, they're probably understaffed based on what I've seen for similar teams. But how do you how do you display that information in a, in a way that you're going to get buy-in from others, right? So, with that team, it's kind of sitting there and going, "Here's how I would tell the story. I would explain, show like all the things you do, show like what the prior priority one, like declare what is priority one for all these different like apps that you support. Um, show how much staff goes into that important part, and then somehow show like where product intent falls in that list, right? Like, and right. so just you know, it's a teaching people how teaching people the tools that I developed along the way. Right. B making sure we have a really strong charter. Um, I don't think of a charter as like a check the box. Hey, I need to have this document. I, I see it as something that actually teaches the people on the team what our priorities are, how to scale, like how to actually assess new priorities, like what our mission is, what decisions that like how I'd like them approaching decisions if I'm not in the room. Cause I don't want to be in the room. <laughs> like yeah, I just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> rather, a, you know, a, a strong team is one that can at the lowest level of the team make the same call as the person at the top of it. Um, right. And I probably do some other stuff too. I don't know. Call some, somebody that, that has worked for me and just yeah, find I mean, out. After this, I'm going to call one of uh, your employees or somebody who worked for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. I think what you said is very interesting, right? Like leadership sometimes is sometimes you have to step in and inspire, but sometimes you also have to let the teams kind of figure out how do you want to communicate upwards? So they need to learn that themselves. And uh, have you had instances where, you know, you are trying to make a decision on, on, you know, what product to choose and there's really been a confusion and then you have to step in and say, okay, we need to look at these fundamental objectives before deciding. And we've had a challenge like that before. 
Sure. I, um, you know, to me, I think it's more, it's not a step in when the decision like is trying to be made. It's more of a start with guiding principles. Right. And so when approaching a big, big project, it's kind of the, what is my job? Is my job to tell everyone to go design something and then at the end of it, shit all over the design? Or <laughs> is it to say, and I don't mean like requirements, I mean like, hey, I want to actually paint the guiding principles story, why we're doing this, what's the history here? Like, I want to fill people who may not be familiar with the project in along the way. I want this to be a very consumable, like, like story, right? Like, right, right. Hey, maybe the company's tried this three times and this is the fourth time. And like, here's yeah. what went wrong, right? And then going into it, say like, hey, for me to be happy as the sponsor, boss, whatever my name is today, like, here's what needs to be true at the end of this. And then share that with the world. Share it with the world and get the world to also chime in because I want to hear from the other leaders what would and then and then their their folks what would make this project successful and then if I hand that to my team and right. I say now you're in design phase they're gonna make something great mm. right like the expectations already been set like everyone's already chimed in on what they generally want sure there's some like there's some versions of it and and, and this to me is all internal customers in this particular example but like. You know, there, there's going to be some comments on how we design it along the way, but the expectations already set that we are going to design. We are going to build something that does do this. And so for me, it's kind of just one of those. I think my job is to uh, listen to people, tell them, like regurgitate what I think they told me as far as what they want my team to work on. Right. Um, then somehow come back and say, hey, my team has designed this thing. Could you read this and make sure it's the thing that you said that you wanted me to work on? Right, And then yeah. as we build it, say demo the thing and say, hey, is this still the thing you asked for instead of the most important thing? It's just kind of like that if you can create that quick feedback loop over and over and over again, as somebody, exactly. especially someone who works in engineering tools, like by the time you roll it out, everyone's like, ah, it's here. It's fantastic. Instead of right. the, hey, we think we know how to make, make your problem going away and then just disappearing. <laughs> And like a year later coming back with something that everyone forgot about and no one really like has, you know, their eyes on anymore. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, I think that when you said that I was exactly thinking the same word that what you're creating is like a very good, efficient feedback loop uh, before you commit to something and you're so down the pipe, you realize that, oh, you went a totally different direction. It's just it's great. I mean, uh, so that was amazing that uh, I was also thinking in the similar uh, vein on, you know, what you were trying to say. Uh I wanted to jump back to uh, some of the things that you were talking about engineering tools, you know. I wanted to understand what is it that you use the most or have used in the last decade that you feel is a phenomenal technology that, uh, you know, changed the game for everybody. Uh, It's GitLab, GitHub. It's so simple. It's so boring. Uh, But, (laughs) and and I'll tell you this, like, I I know that's a boring cop-out answer, especially for someone that spends very little time in either. Um, The, like, uh, if anyone follows like DevX and has looked at the space framework, right. And surveys yeah. and stuff, um, you know, previously, like I, I'm a big fan of DevX surveys. I think if you get some of the best data you're going to from just asking people, how does this work? How's your day? Right. Um, but I also used to like, um, we used to cheat at Peloton and we used to uh, also add like a section that'd be like, Hey, check off which of these tools you use. And it'd be like everything related to software development in the entire company. And at the top of that list over and over and over again, it was always GitHub, right? Like, it's just like, like, this is the one thing that you've got, like, A, we didn't do, we don't have a lot of custom, like, like, you know, uh, work on the implementation, obviously, but like, it just out of box does what everyone expects it to. 
it's well understood. It's, it, it's a necessity for everybody that everybody likes versus a necessity for everybody that everybody dislikes, hates, or, or puts up with. Right. right. Yeah. So describe for, uh, you know, folks who are listening, what is developer experience? Like maybe folks don't get that. Like, can you simplify that for some people as to what is developer experience? Why is it important for enterprises to have something like that uh, in practice? Yeah. So um, if you think about your engineers at a company like the size of the one that I'm working for or previously worked for, it's probably the majority of your product. It's the majority, like they're building your entire company around you. Right. If you're cockroaches, it's a hundred percent true. Right. Um, why not take the time (laughs) to, to measure and to move forward an agenda that helps make them as productive, happy and engaged as humanly possible. Um, and so DevX sets out to do just that in some organizations, it DevX may be the group that solely does the product research around this and solely builds the strategy around this. Um, in in other groups, it may be also encompassing of some of the tooling that you'd want that team to have direct control of. Um, right. In my world, it's a little of both, right? So uh, we're working now to get um, a little bit more of a product feel on it, but make sure we're interviewing developers. We're getting, we're, we're running, we're running surveys. We're looking at uh, at actual data from what's happening in Jira, what's happening in GitLab, what's happening in our CI tools to see what the right. state of the union is taking that, distilling it down. And then, you know, for the things that we have direct control of. So for me, that, that happens to be CI, SCM, right? Um, yeah. Okay. I, I know how to solve these problems. I have direct control. It's very easy to, to admit to change things you control. The harder part of it is how do you bring, like, you're not the top, like you're not running the rest of the company. Right. How do you influence others? How do you how do you how do you take that data in a really compelling way and put it in front of the rest of the organization so that they go, ah, you are right. The way we do X is problematic for the goal here, which is right. You know, developer engagement and developer enablement. Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting too because last 10, 15 years, there's been a shift in trends, right? Like we we saw the cloud platforms coming and then cloud pr- platforms will have their own specific products and databases and services. And then we had a phase where we had, you know, open source technology uh, kind of boom up. We had projects like Spark. Uh, we have projects like, you know, Cockroach is an open source project as well. Uh, you know, lots of open source projects and developers want to like, try these out and kind of use uh, um, these in pro- projects. But 10, 15 years ago, the open source was not something that would relatively be easy to squeeze into any company, be alone uh, a financial company. Hey, they were so critical. So did you have uh, phases where developers came back to you and said, no, we need to use this open source project. This is really good. This is the direction. And how did you go about kind of considering that into the overall developer experience? Uh, for tool selection and what should we use and what can we use? Uh, normally on that interview question, I just immediately punt to the, the paper, the Netflix golden path, okay, which is like the story of, Hey, right. Like maybe I'm a regulated industry in my example, I'm a regulated industry and there's a little less regulated probably, yeah. but, um, there's a lot of tools. Tools are good. I don't want to be the person to say, no, you shouldn't use this for the, for your use case. Right. I don't want to be that one like magical architect that needs to review everything that goes in a company. Right. Rather do instead is say, hi, my job is do Jason stuff. 
this seems like a tool that falls into Jason stuff's arena. I've heard, for, I, I have all the data on what people like using, what people don't like using, which tools cost more, which tools cost less, like which we find that developers are generally effective with. I'm going to build this paved path for people that want to use this tool that meets 80% of the need or whatnot, but I'm not going to stop people that are in this strange, like other 20% from doing their job. Just know the barrier of entry is going to be harder because I've already covered all this thing for the people that adopt this. Right. Um, and so like, I, I, I like the, the, the golden path concept from Netflix in that it's standardization to make things easy for people that choose the standard. Right. It doesn't squash the great ideas and the innovation that comes from folks that need to go a different path. Right. 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 And right. then in, oh. the, in the event, people go down that road and find that weird database or find that weird tool that we have something similar in the company, but that doesn't meet a need and it shows value through, through their work. Then that becomes the next thing that also falls into the standard list. Right. It's just, right. Doesn't start yeah. that way. I mean, it's, it, we're talking about cracking a b- bunch of eggs in the process, right? But which is expected to have when you think about innovation as being central to, you know, building out a cool product. And to to what I was trying to say was with that is you've had phases and then we had Kubernetes and now we're at a phase where we have generative AI, right? And I know you are working at BNY Mellon, so anything generative AI and codes getting used can be tricky, especially in the financial space. But uh, lots of developers today are trying to use, say, you know, Microsoft GitHub Copilot. And there is a lot of value that they get, like really good boilerplate code, right? So uh, has that come up or are you thinking about how that fits into the overall yeah. developer story? Oh my God. Like, yeah, that yeah, a little like, bit, yeah. I mean, not a little bit. I, I think uh, <laughs> it's like Copilot is cool, FYI. But like, you know, a- anything that's going to make people make people's jobs easier, Anything that's going to be check like helping them build portions of their code and doing it in a really like innovative way is going to be good. Um, and and you know I, I won't I won't go ahead and uh, I won't tell you what pilots we've got underway at the company because I don't think I signed the, the right communication form to do so. Yeah. But uh, you know like I, I do see like generative AI, even the evolution of prompt in, like our uh, prompt engineering, prompt engineering, super, yeah, super cool. Um, I, I think it's all win. It's like getting to a point where like all the care and feeding that needs to go into well, like we're going to say like healthy quality driven code, like come some of it to like starting to magically appear around you as you're working. It's right. fantastic. Yeah. So I was just talking to like in the morning today, interestingly, I was speaking to another person who is also from Austin, Texas. I'm not sure if he's your neighbor, but uh, we were talking. We don't go outside right now. It's 108 degrees out there. Oh, so. yeah, yeah. It's 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 pretty damn hot here in Dallas, too. But when we were talking, uh, you know, he was also mentioning this whole push for uh, using generative AI. Uh, but in the whole experience there, he he mentioned something that was really profound, the fact that Generative AI can give you a really good function, right? Uh, if you ask for, hey, give me this function, it can give you that really good function and it can ex- accelerate your code timing from, say, 30 minutes to, say, 15 minutes. But you still have to spend another five minutes just to refine that and turn it into what it needs to be for your enterprise. Do you think that enterprises today who are talking about generative AI are also considering putting proper guidelines to allow innovation yet at the same time make sure that there are checks placed in to make sure that we are not just copying paste code that's written by somebody else at some other company (laughs) uh i would assume so the cool thing is like i think most people are starting with things like copilot 
which are right. going to come with some rails right outside, like, in, you know, or coming on rails. It's not like just be like, hey, chat GPT, could you write this for me? Uh, I think folks are going to like, I think the bigger companies are very wary of sending any question out to like a GPT engine out in the middle of nowhere, right? And seeing what right. comes back, right? Um, but if folks are starting smaller, I think they're safer. I'm sure as this evolves, like the companies that love controlling things will find like various what like control points are needed. They're going to have to put it in. I'm sure the startups will just be like, whatever it, it runs, like, you know, we'll, <laughs> there'll be a good mix in between too. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So I wanted to also understand, you know, uh, your work at Peloton, what you did, that was like a very interesting uh, role because you were there to like bring this whole team that's been running at such a fast pace and there is so much demand for the product uh, and you need to innovate and developers are just going crazy uh, using different things. What was that role uh, like in an environment where there was suddenly a fire and you were like, damn, like this is this rocket ship is not slowing down. How did you work on that? Oh, uh, I don't know. It was it was fun. Like the cool thing was is I inherited a lot of the folks that helped get it, like help get it off the ground. It wasn't gotcha. like I showed up with like a team of 20 new people that were like, hello, Peloton. What are you? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and it all happened in logical succession, too. So, you know, as, as the as the number of developers grew. The ability to get things done safely get, gets harder and harder and harder. Like there's no more just like, well, hey, so-and-so built this part of the code base. Let me call them. So-and-so built this part. Let's call them. Right. Um, you know, the app became more critical. The app became more complex. And right around the same time, the company was realizing maybe that, you know, like every every post-IPO X startup, right, there's big monolithic like leftover code from that you know from the time you were running as fast as you possibly could right and they were they were also in the process of well let's figure out what the standard microservice should look like let's figure out like what our new stack should be because we're getting like we know a new stack will unlock velocity and the right. old stack is something we're going to have to figure out a strategy around and so i was kind of fortunate in that devx was something that the other devs in the company were asking for so building the DevX function, fairly seamless. Like people were waiting for us to show up and that was fantastic. I sat in with like every VP in the company in my first two weeks and they were all in unison about what I should work on first, right? right? Uh, you know, and, and between that, like doing the little things that a company that gets to that critical moment needs, um, you know, getting our product, like, you know, our internal, like, um, you know, uh, uh, platform, you know, product team together, getting our uh, tech learning team together to help with things like onboarding and teaching the new skills that were necessary to move to these new stacks. Um, all of it was really like, I've never, I felt super welcome there. Super welcome. Yeah. Like the time, like they pulled us in at the very right time. I think like if, right. they, if they, if they grew more, you know, DevX might probably would have been harder to introduce if, right, uh, right, if it was right. any sooner. It might have been overkill and, you know, then, you know, for for like, you know, five devs sitting around looking at each other. Yeah. It's always good to uh, come into an environment where everybody feels there is a need for something rather than somebody saying, hey, we need this and this guy is going to build it. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, it's just much more friendlier, I feel that way. Kind of yeah. 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 Fortunately, like DevX is a real like like for, for good devs expect this. Yeah. And so it's kind of one of those where. You know, whether you find a way to do it local, find a way to do it, like, you know, just push a little bit of culture, right? It's something that no one's going to be like, oh, we don't need that. 
You know, if you know what I hate is someone caring about how I feel and how productive I am. Like I, I, I despise that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, so there's so much happening in the tech space, right? In the industry. How, what, where do you go and, uh, you know, keep up to date with what's happening? Like you have a very important role now with BNY and every other role that you've had, there's some sort of significance, right? And you also have different stuff that you are doing in your life. Where do you go to kind of look for inspiration, look for stuff that needs to be learned that you can apply within your enterprise? Right. For me, it's because I'm working at companies that um, aren't Google, right? Uh, it's, I read a lot of the white papers that come out of the Googles of the world of the, like the, right. you know, the door research teams of the world, because they're solving problems that like they're sprinting and solving problems as they're sprinting. And right. I'm working on a company that at the moment, like needs to get out of the crawl phase. Right? right. And so for me, it's, I unfortunately don't have to be, but so much of a futurist because people are solving this for way harder problems. And I'm looking and I'm reading those papers and going, Oh, either that's, that'd be a nice problem to have, or that is a genius way of approaching this. I'm totally stealing that and adopting it. And I will give whoever wrote this paper credit, like, you know, at the, at the yeah, bottom yeah, of yeah. my deck. Um, so I do a lot, a lot of reading um, just random papers on productivity, productivity studies. Um, I, um, Avi Noda's uh, engineering enablement podcast. Amazing. Um, I'm a big fan of Gene Kim's uh, idea cast. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I, I try to spend maybe just an hour or two a week just learning from people that are doing it better than me, most likely. And, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and getting ideas. And like, I, I've come with my new team now. It's like we have a little like blog book club to right. like, if, you know, it's, it, it shouldn't just be me. Right. Like, I, I've got, a, I've got like 200 folks that are brilliant and have better ideas than I do. And just kind of like taking turns sharing what, what we, what was the last cool, interesting thing you ran into, right? Like what technology are you guys paying attention to? Yeah. Like it, it, it goes a long way. I mean, the fascinating thing about what you just said is also that you have so many people who are also actively trying to get better, learn new things. And it's about the challenge also it persists where how do you take all these 200 people, get the best five ideas, then translate that into that one idea that will work for the company, right? Like, uh, so do you get into things where you see two good ideas and you're like, damn, I mean, I want to apply both of them, but I just don't know how to kind of, how do you go about making those decisions? It's infinite. a good problem to have, but <laughs> go ahead. Uh, yeah, I generally just want to hear, like with the team, especially the size of mine, it's more... Yeah, and, and, and my old boss at Peloton, um, uh, Jim Hogwatt, was the one that kind of taught me this technique. It's like, I want to hear their stories from the future. Like, I want, like, uh, it's really easy to sit and try to prioritize two things. What were the two next steps we should take? Um, and you can, like, you don't have a grading model for what to do next. But if you just actually sit down and instead say, where do we want to be in three years? Like, what's, do, does my job even exist in three years? Let's, let's start there. Like, what... What does the average developer's day look like? What does the average database, you know, like DBA's day look like? Like, what, 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 what does the actual org look like? What are we doing? What, what's going to be good? What does fast look like? Uh, and then you get an agreement on what the future is supposed to look like, the ideal right. future. And then all of a sudden, like, you find people just start aligning much more easily towards the like what to do next. Right. Like it's no longer hard. It's kind of like oh, if we're getting there here's the sequence, right? Right. Uh, I don't know if that directly answered the question, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I get the I get the feel uh, of where you're going for it. Like, so basically what you're saying is that the 
the thing is for you to understand like what are those key things and then once you identify that everybody kind of aligns to uh what that one thing needs to be got it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's kind of the, yeah. like we and we do that through everything it's like our krs right like right, but right. Not, not just the krs themselves just what's the story like hey yeah yeah, yeah. three years 100%. from now new bmy and you know engineer sits down how quickly do they get to their first pr right right how you know how how seamless was setting up their ide Right. Like uh, how, you know, how, how quick is it to get a technical inquiry from another team to find out how to integrate with their API? Right. Like, like, like you start going through those and then you start looking at the metrics where, what are those things is the hardest today? And they start to define right. themselves as the most important thing to probably chase. Got it. Yeah. Do you think that having cloud platforms and having these ready made, already maintained, you know, SaaS products in the market, do you think that has added value to developers so that they don't have to think about, okay, I, I just need to learn, know how to use this product rather than learn how to deploy, manage, run. Do you think that's helped uh, your team and or teams that you've worked with before? Yeah. Some, it depends. Like if you're talking about just cloud technology and maybe the layer on top of it, absolutely. Like, right? yeah. like get like things that help CD go fast. <laughs> Very good. Um, yeah. I'm hesitant to say I'm in love with um, kind of like CI/CD out of a box yet. Like right, I haven't right. found a product yet, yet. Like, and, there, and there's ones that all have great components of something that I want, right? Right. But there's not one where it's like, if I just did this, <laughs> there'd be no customization necessary. And right. man, all you, 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 you click commit and, and life is great, right? Like, we yeah. have, like that doesn't exist yet, um, but it will, right? Like at yeah. some point. Talk to me about... Um, uh, you know, like, is it like uh, Netlify, Amplify? Have you explored those products that do CI/CD automation uh, and deployments for you? Have you explored any of those? Netlify, Netlify is cool. Like, uh, we yeah. think Peloton's a customer, and they use them for the the front end um, deployments. I think like all of them are good for like a single use case, or, right? Or maybe two, right? It's like I, I, I'm really waiting for one of them to just sweep in and be like. We own your entire deployment suite, right? Like, uh, I, I just <laughs> yeah. don't see it just yet. What What are the other uh, tools? Uh, I know there have been some interesting tools in the space right now uh, that I'm exploring myself for my stuff, like for managing. Do you think Notion? Have you do you have you explored Notion by any chance as a productivity tool? Mm-mm. Okay, yeah. What's it do? I think it's, Should I know about this? Am I am I am I am I calling myself out on, in public forum by not knowing? What no, it is? well, I I don't know if like we you know we have Confluence right as like one of those places yeah. where folks go put uh, stories and uh, they can put their documentation and things like that. But I feel like I have seen uh, Notion as being is this new platform that's like AI supported that allows you to do whatever you want to like. You can create you have multiple templates available, and uh, you know folks can use it for their own personal, you know tracking of things and project progress and uh things like that so i found it i found it pretty interesting i've been using it myself uh so yeah maybe something that i can share with you that you can go and explore it's called i think the website is called notion.com here now so i will definitely look at this yeah 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 (laughs) no it's it's awesome yeah well jason i mean i wanted to ask you as we kind of come to the close of uh you know you've been so uh generous with your time and sharing all these amazing ideas what is your ideal advice to anybody who is in this process of, you know, trying to build platform engineering or great SRE teams as to what are the few things that they should be doing to kind of build a great team? I think 
the, the when it comes to just anything platforming in general, yeah, um, I think inviting like getting real product managers involved mm-hmm. is probably like one of the biggest game changers you can. I, right. I see, I see so much like companies all kind of want the same thing. They want to develop great stuff. They want to make sure they're promoting reuse inside the company, be that open source or other. Right. Um, and I, I think a lot of us get hung up on the question of how does adoption happen? Right. And I think it's very easy when you have the hammer, you have the power to just order adoption of your platforms, right. Mm-hmm. To say, I built this, I built this, it's going to save the company millions and millions of dollars, adopt my thing. What is wrong with you? Why don't you like this? Right. Be that right. a piece of software, this, that, or another. Um, and I really just, I, I, I don't see success in that. Like, unless you're actually measuring that, like, what, what's the MPS score of the thing I built, what I want to build? What are my product managers telling me the biggest problems are inside my organization? Like, right. can I actually make people happy by existing um, once you can, once you start to unpack that a little bit, uh, I, I think you start moving, you, like you can't move in a wrong direction at that point. Right. It's just, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's like, do you want to be the DMV? You know, do you want to be the platform that everyone like is really proud of that talks to their peers in the, in the industry about that says, right. oh, this is how we do it here. Right. Like, and this is, this was great. And the cost, like, you know, the, the devs love it. The customers love it. Everyone's happy with it. Solves this problem. Right. So right. long story short, I, I don't think there's enough. Uh, and this is coming from someone that's done nothing but chase bits around all his life and has no formal product manager training. Uh, I, I think getting, figuring out the voice of your customer in my, in my line of business, that's the developer, figuring out that voice and working backwards from it is probably the most important thing you could do. Where else do you think, I mean, you have shared some amazing advice. I mean, some really great comments, I would say, on this you know, podcast. And for everyone listening, Jason's uh, amazing. I mean, he's got a pretty, I would say, decently active LinkedIn profile. <laughs> Where I've, uh, I've seen that you've interacted. Where else can people kind of follow you? Is there like, is there a blog base, place or a Substack or uh, something that you do on LinkedIn where people can follow you and kind of catch you? LinkedIn is probably the most useful, um, you know, and, and then occasionally I'll remember to push the like post to Twitter button on LinkedIn when I'm publishing something primarily on LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> that's generally going to be it. Uh, yeah, and I try to pin in like this podcast, I try to pin stuff that I, that I actively like authored. I uh, just right. have gotten lazy at it. We'll get better. <laughs> this will inspire me to be better. Also, uh, David, I don't know about you, but when the, when the whole pandemic happened, like I, I had to, I didn't make the transition from like on stage and conferences to like doing this. Like it is until after COVID. I'm like, I guess I could start talking to people again. Like yeah, this sounds yeah. like fun. Generally feel like everyone who has been in the space, especially last 10, 15 years, who's worked on innovative products such as you has so many great stories to share, you know? And if I have to leave you with anything, I feel like I I just would say there is more Jason needed in the world, you know? Like, so we need, we need more of you in the sense, like you have great experience, like how you have been inspired by what Netflix has done. I think some of the things that you have done, putting it together in a place or like as you shared in today's podcast just helps so many people. And it's, it, that's how great communities, great open source communities and great uh, you know ideas are passed around. So I feel like we need a little bit more of that. And I'm glad that you took the time to come on the podcast and talk about it with us. That's <laughs> so awesome. It's awesome. No, thank you, David. You're way too kind. 
Yeah, I am kind, but you are too good. <laughs> <laughs>